Anyways, all right, let's see what's happening this week. July 4th. What is this? This is like the 200 and what, 45th birthday of Somewhere the United America. States of America, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. Little thing that we don't uh, talk about often enough, I think. We really should appreciate our nation more than we do. I wish she was still in here, but um, I was talking to Lucy just not too long ago, and she was expressing how, how difficult things have become in her home country, Guatemala. And, um, you know, with the, the, the drug cartels and just the, just the random crime that happens on the streets every day. She spoke about everyone having to have their windows in their cars tinted so that nobody could really see who was in there or what they were doing. Um, that uh, even on the hottest of days and if your air conditioner isn't working, you never roll your windows down while you're out on the streets. You have to leave them rolled up, otherwise you're endangering yourself and uh, other people in the car. And she was saying, it is so nice to live in a nation where the people, for the most part, still believe in and respect the rule of law. And I thought, wow, what a, what a great testimony. And so, you know, we've been talking about the just society for some time, and we've been speaking of it more in terms of what the congregation of God should look like. That certainly the congregations of God should be little miniatures of a larger just society. God had intended all of Israel to be the just society that would be a, an example to the world. When Israel fell, then that responsibility went to the synagogues to be a just society wherever they were at, in whatever pagan nation they may have been in, uh, in whatever um, state of moral disrepair that nation may have been in. The synagogue was to be the just society. Well, so also are the houses of God that were begun by Yeshua to be a just society. And that means we should be a just society within the midst of our nation, whatever else is happening um, in that nation. We should certainly be a just society. If we're not, shame on us. Um, what I want to speak today a, a little bit, since it is getting you know, right up to July 4th, is about our nation. Because our nation, in my opinion, has served for most of its history in the world as something of a just society. Uh, we talk about the, uh, you know, we, we've got this thing called cancel culture and, of course, BLM and Antifa and, and groups like this that 
seem to be inclined mostly just to tear the nation down rather than to build the nation. Um, but regardless of what these groups say, regardless of how our history is being removed in many ways from our school systems, other places, um, still, we at our peril forget the history that we have lived as a nation. A people do not succeed without a past. We have a past as a nation, a past as an American nation. Have we always been perfect? Oh, of course not. Of course not. We're human beings. Um, it, it's like I oftentimes tell people who, um, who, who want to go to a, a, a particular congregation, they're looking for the perfect place. And I say, well, as soon as you find the perfect place, let me know so that I'll make sure I don't go and screw it up. You see. Because as soon as I, a mere human being, step into the perfect congregation, which there is no such thing, by the way, then it would no longer be perfect anyways. So the 4th of July, the United States of America, I, I want to speak about God and the blessing of nations today if I quit a little bit. It's probably the only time since I've been here that I've actually preached something of a patriotic sermon regarding the United States of America. But today I wish to do so. And I think it important because in the age of the cancel culture, it's time to cancel that culture and to stand up for things that are right and true and good. I'd like to point out that if instead of it being, being Martin Luther King Jr. in the culture of the United States or Mahatma Gandhi in the culture of Great Britain, if instead they had been in the cultures of the former Soviet Union and of communist China instead, what they did would have come to nothing. They would have disappeared into the long night of the gulag and never been heard from again. And their ideas of justice in society would have died with them. It's only because they were living in a society that really did believe in God's justice, even with those who were ensconced in the sin of racism. Our nation's founders founded this nation on the ideas that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator <coughs> with certain inalienable rights. Among these being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All men. <coughs> and I'll Oh, by the way, did you know that in the former Soviet Union, it's most interesting 
they really gave the people just about all the same rights in their constitution that we find in ours. They did. Might sound surprising, but it's written down. Not that the words mean much, but it's written down in their constitution. Of course, there was no Second Amendment right. Can't have that. But you know, one thing that they missed, in our Constitution, it is enshrined that these rights are derived from God. They're not from the government. They're from God. And so, in the former Soviet Union, you know, what the government gives, the government can take away here in the United States, we had enshrined into our founding document that our rights do not come from the government. Well, how could they? Because the government isn't boss, the people are boss. But even beyond that, the Constitution is the boss. And beyond that, God is the boss. And so the Constitution recognizes this and therefore tells us that our freedoms come from God, not from government, not from man who might change his mind if he decides he doesn't like the way the people are acting or doing things even though what they're doing might be nothing wrong at all. So anyways, on this 4th of July, let's remember that what we're talking about here is far more than just hot dogs and hamburgers on the grill and watching fireworks in the evening, however enjoyable as those activities may be. We need to remember on this 4th of July, that there were those who gave their lives, who gave everything, who pledged their sacred honor and their fortunes to the notion that men were created as free beings by God. Because I'll tell you, if we don't stand up for our nation, we will lose it. We will lose it. Lucy, I started out by telling the, the, them that little testimony you gave me the other day when we were talking about Guatemala and just how hard it can be just because of the crime there. Yeah. And... Um, I'll tell you, folks, I, I just see so many of our young people, for instance, who seem to have no idea whatsoever about our nation, the nation's founding, what our founding documents stand for. There seems to be this thing that we listen to the popular culture around us, and the popular culture tells us how terrible our nation is, and we just blithely accept it as if the popular culture actually knows something about it. 
which it doesn't, obviously. And so it's important today that we spend a few minutes in considering where we've come from as Americans because we are an American nation. We are made up of people from all over the world who have come together and created one American nation. Understanding that um, together we stand, but divided we will fall. And our nation is badly divided today. So the 4th of July, uh, on the 4th of July in 1776, a uh, singularly great document called the Declaration of Independence was adopted by the delegates of the Second Continental Congress. It wasn't until August 2nd that the document was signed You do realize that every one of the people who signed their names to that document, they were taking their lives in their hands because the British had already made it quite clear that anyone who was supporting this rebellion, this revolution against the crown of Great Britain, that they would lose everything that they had if the British could enforce it. And they intended to enforce it. Hey, they went to war for seven years on the soil of the American colonies in order to enforce British rule over the colonies. Seven years shows quite a bit of resolve, doesn't it? They spent a lot of treasure, they lost a lot of lives. So did we, and eventually came out with an independent republic, not a democracy, a republic. And it's important that we note this because a democracy is the rule of 50 plus one. That's a democracy. A republic is where you have represented representatives that are elected from each district and they come together and they help set the laws for the people. We also have some other things that the founders threw in there. I don't think they threw them in there. They thought it out very carefully. For instance, this little thing called the Electoral College that you are hearing that some want to see simply go away. The Electoral College was put in place for a particular purpose, and that is so that the bigger states with greater population could not lord it over the smaller states with lesser population. Do you want to be ruled from New York or California, I might ask? I certainly don't. Not living in Kansas. I would rather be ruled mostly from Kansas, certainly not from faraway places that while they may be on this continent, they do not in any way 
share my values, nor believe in my values. And I would dare say that most of us here would probably agree with that. You see, without the Electoral College, though, it really would be a problem of one vote plus 50%, and you would have your government. It would be a government of the few, not of the many. With an Electoral College in place, guess what? People have to learn to get along, and every part of the country gets its chance to be heard. You see, this is what stands, what is at stake these days as we consider what's happening in our country, though. It's not just that there's sin in the land. There certainly is sin in the land. And because of that sin that's in the land, I think you've got a lot of very wicked people who are now in positions of power where they can make decisions for the rest of us. This isn't a good thing, though. And it needs to change. Let's talk about what God thinks of nations and how he looks at the peoples of those nations and how they should react towards government and towards their responsibilities as citizens of the nations they live in. Well, we certainly know how God thought of the people of Israel and what he thought the people of Israel should do. In 2 Chronicles 7, 14, we read, When my people, over whom my name is called, humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So God was telling the people of ancient Israel, that when you sin, if you will repent, turn towards me, turn away from those wicked ways you were following, then I will hear you from heaven, and I will forgive your sins, and I will heal your land. Pretty good stuff, huh? God is merciful. We need to remember that. But he will not wink at sin. Sin is a disgrace to any people. Psalm 33, 12 tells us, Blessed is the nation whose God is Adonai. Psalm 68, 38 tells us, O God, you are awesome from your holy places. The God of Israel gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. Psalm 89, 16 tells us, Blessed are the people who know the joyful shout. They walk in the light of your presence, Adonai. Psalm 144, 14 and 15 tells us of a blessed nation. Our oxen bear a heavy load. Well, this is a good thing. It speaks of plenty in the land. And so our oxen bear a heavy load. There is no breach. There is no going into captivity. There is no outcry in our streets. Happy are such a people. Blessed are the people whose God is Adonai. Isaiah 19, 24 and 25. We find that God not only speaks of blessing Israel, the people of Israel, 
But he speaks of blessing the nations also. You know, there's a lot of people who think that one world government would be great. You know, we tried that once before. It was called the Tower of Babel, and it was a disaster. It did not work well. We don't want another Tower of Babel, and we don't need the one world government that many of these cats think we need. The fact is, God was the first nationalist in a way. He's the one who created the nations after all. He drove them apart. He gave them their languages. The Bible even tells us that he set their boundaries according to the number of the sons of Israel. Fascinating. So God is not an enemy of the nations. Don't ever think that he is. He's not. He is for the nations. Isaiah 19, 24 and 25. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. For Adonai Savaot has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Hmm, very interesting. Egypt, the nation that enslaved Israel for 400 years. My people, he said. Assyria, the nation that was one of the cruelest in the ancient world as far as the way they would treat conquered peoples. And yet he calls Assyria his handiwork. And Israel is to be a third with them. Make no mistake about it, though. God is in charge of the nations. It's been well said that he causes empires to rise and he causes empires to fall. So in Daniel 4, 28 and 29, we read, the words were still in the king's mouth when a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, it has been decreed to you that your kingdom has been removed from you. You will be driven away from men and you will live with the beast of the field you will feed on grass like an ox and seven periods of time will pass over you until you come to know that the Most High is sovereign over the realm of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. Indeed, God does cause empires to rise and empires to fall. How many of you doubt that he caused the United States to rise? I hope there's no one here who has that doubt. Of course, he did. If the United States outlives its usefulness, though, I'm quite sure he can do with us what he did with ancient Babylon. Ancient Babylon no longer exists, I might point out. Job 12.23 tells us he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges the nations and he leads them away. Indeed, God created the nations. He created the nations for his purposes. The nations are not an enemy of God necessarily. They can be based on their leadership, but God is not against the nations. He is for the nations, and he wants all nations to know him, to include our own, the United States of America. In Romans 13, 1 through 7, Paul tells us that we should respect the authorities that God has put in place over us. And by the way, he's not talking about spiritual authorities. 
in the early part of Romans 13, he is talking about the government. We should be praying for our government. We should be earnestly praying for them that they would turn towards God and that they would do the things that God desires them to do. Because I'll tell you, sin is a reproach to any people. And if you've got a government that is leading you into sin, then your nation becomes a reproach to God. Let's talk about what some of our early founders thought of the nature of government when it comes to God. John Adams, who was the second president of the United States of America, and uh, who very much may have been the actual driving force behind the writing of the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence, especially when it comes to those memorable words that we hold these things self-evident that all people are created equal. Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. I'm not sure a slave owner could really have said that. John Adams, who was a lifelong abolitionist, I think he certainly could have. He says, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people, and it is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. I want you to let those words sink in. That the sins of man, if unbridled by moral sensibilities, will destroy any people given the broad freedoms that our Constitution and Declaration of Independence promise us. And I use the two together because I really look at the Declaration of Independence as the preamble of the Constitution. The Constitution simply fleshes out in detail what the Declaration of Independence tells us in brief. But without a moral and religious people, such freedoms as we have could not exist because such people who do not have morals will tear themselves apart with great freedom. I got to tell you, I look at what's happening in our nation today, and I think that we are reflecting exactly what Adam said, don't you? I mean, we've come to a point where we can call the murder of the unborn a right, 
Since when did murder become a right for anyone? We talked about the big three rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I will guarantee you nobody can pursue the other rights unless they first have life, can they? And yet we would deprive the youngest among us that first right of life. We come to the point where we will justify just about any sin just by saying, well, they love each other. Really? We'd have to believe now then that love thinks sin is good. So Adams was pretty clear about the importance of morality and religion in order to govern human passions so that we could enjoy the great freedoms that were given in our founding documents. George Washington, he said, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would have the United States in his holy protection, that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government, to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another, for their fellow citizens of the United States at large, and particularly for their brethren who have served in the field. And finally, that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, and without an humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. You know, in Washington's army, if you were going to be a non-commissioned officer, you could not curse or use coarse language. Washington would not hear of it because he felt like it was dishonoring the position. It was dishonoring the nation that they were defending. And it ultimately dishonored God. Imagine that in the army, an NCO not using salty language. And yet in Washington's army, that's how it was. I only want to mention one more character from American history, and that's Noah Webster. Yeah, the one who first wrote a dictionary. Webster's Dictionary. Still see it today. It's not as good as it used to be. Noah Webster, he was an interesting man. I want to read some uh, comments that I, I found on a particular website. I'll start with one quote from Noah Webster himself, though. He said, The Bible must be considered as the great source of all the truths by which men are to be guided in government as well as in all social transactions. 
the Bible is the instrument of all reformation in morals and religion. You want to know what our founders felt about God and the Bible when it comes to government? That without God and the Bible, government amongst the just and the free becomes an impossibility. Oh, I would have it again that we would have governing officials who really believed these things and conducted their lives accordingly. So I'm going to make some comments uh, based on an article that I saw from a, um, a presentation called The American Minute. William Federer is the one who um, brings that to us. But he, looking at, at this transcript, I just want to read a part of it, and, and, and we start with this. For Israel's first four centuries, it did not have a king being ruled instead by the law. The law declared there was no respect of persons in judgment. Rich and poor were to be treated the same. Male and female made in the image of the Creator. Even the stranger living among them was under the same law that they were under. This was the beginning of the concept of equality. As there was no royal family to seek favors from, no superior or inferior class, no caste system. Israel's experiment in self-government was dependent on one thing, the priest teaching the people to read the law. The law was empowered when people were taught that there is a God who knows every thought and sees every action. Number two, that God wants us to be fair. And number three, that God will hold us accountable in the life to come. When the priest neglected the teaching of the law, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and the country descended into moral chaos. Out of their rebellious moral chaos, Israel got a totalitarian ruler, King Saul, who soon killed a large number of the priests, with the notable exception of Avi Attar escaping to David. The pattern was clear for a country to maintain order without a king. There needed to be a citizenry educated in moral restraint. Sounds a lot like what we would have expected from John Adams, right? Moral restraint. This was understood during America's colonial era where education and morals were a high priority. After independence, large numbers of immigrants arrived in America. The response was to create common schools for them. You might say the beginning of our public school system. The father of American scholarship and education was Noah Webster. He died May 28, 1843. Webster attended Yale, founded as a Puritan congregational school. But when the Revolutionary War started, he left for four years to go fight and do his part 
that America might have its freedom. After graduation, Noah Webster became a lawyer and taught in New York. Dissatisfied with children's spelling books of the time, Noah Webster wrote the famous Blueback Speller, which sold over 100 million copies. Early editions had a moral catechism with rules from the Scriptures. Imagine that. Your children's school books having a moral catechism with rules from the Scriptures rather than the immoral chaos that we have in our public schools today. For generations, American schoolchildren learned letters, morality, and patriotism from Webster's spellers, catechisms, history books, and his Webster's Dictionary. By the way, he served nine terms in Connecticut's legislature and three terms in the Massachusetts legislature where he lobbied for funding for public education, arguing that the government should discipline our youth in early life in sound maxims of moral, political, and religious duties. Noah Webster further stated, society requires that the education of youth should be watched with the most scrupulous attention. He said, education in a great measure forms the moral characters of men, and morals are the basis of government. Education should therefore be the first care of a legislature, for it is much easier to introduce and establish an effectual system for preserving morals than to correct by penal statutes the ill effects of a bad system. Considering that ancient Israel had no prison system at all. None. If you stole from someone, you had to make restitution which means you had to return what you had stolen or the equivalent of that and pay a certain amount over the top, usually 20%. In ancient Israel, if you committed a capital crime, you weren't able to draw out the legal sentencing for 20 years. You were put to death. Ancient Israel had a very just government. They didn't need a large prison system because they dealt with the crime on the spot. Here in the United States, we seem to have missed that lesson. I want to repeat that last statement again, though. Education should therefore be the first care of a legislature. For it is much easier to introduce and establish an effectual system for preserving morals than to correct by penal statutes the ill effects of a bad system. Wow. Good words. True words. Words that I'm afraid far too many in the... <laughs> United States of America of our days have forgotten. 
But what was Noah Webster talking about when it came to education? In his opinion, education starts with God. It starts with the moral framework of God's holy word. And without that as the foundation for all education, then education itself would be corrupted and perverted. When was the last time any of you saw a moral catechism as part of the training for your children in school? Of course, I'm not asking those who have their kids perhaps in a Christian school or even in a homeschooling environment. I'm asking for those in the public schools. There is no such thing in the public schools anymore. And it's really unfortunate. Webster continued, the goodness of a heart is of infinitely more consequence to society than elegance in manners. Nor will any superficial accomplishments repair the want of principle in the mind. The education of youth lays the foundation which both law and gospel rest for success. To give children a good education in manners, arts, and science is important. But to give them a religious education is indispensable. And an immense responsibility rests on parents and guardians who neglect these duties. You see, these are the principles that built the United States of America. Not slavery. As terrible of a sin as it was, slavery did not build the USA. It was a failed system from the beginning. Practical truths in religion, in morals, and in all civil and social concerns ought to be among the first and most prominent objects of instruction. Without religious and moral principles deeply impressed on the mind and controlling the whole conduct, science and literature will not make men what the laws of God require them to be. Well, the guy could have been a preacher. I mean, this is good stuff. And without both kinds of knowledge, citizens cannot enjoy the blessings which they seek. He wrote in On the Education of Youth in America, it was printed by Webster's American Magazine in 1788, in some countries, the common people are not permitted to read the Bible at all. In ours, it is as common as a newspaper, and in schools is read with the same degree of respect. Select passages of Scripture may be read in schools to great advantage. 
My wish is not to see the Bible excluded from schools, but to see it used as a system of religion and morality. Now, I'd imagine most here probably did not realize just how deeply the founders of this nation felt about the supreme importance of godliness in the conduct of our lives and in the conduct of the governance of our nation. That without good religion and without a moral framework that our nation would crumble from within. A crumbling that I think we're seeing in our nation today. A moral rot that seems to be rotting everything about our nation from the inside out. This is what happens when the people of a nation reject God. Cal Thomas, who is a modern commentator on the conditions of the United States of today and also the church in our nation, he makes a very telling and uh, I think very truthful statement. In a free society, government reflects the soul of its people. I want you to consider that. In a free society, government reflects the soul of its people. So if people want change at the top, they will have to live in different ways. Our major social problems are not the cause of our decadence. They are a reflection of our decadence. So on this July 4th, if we as citizens, free citizens still, of the United States of America really do want to see some changes in our country, then those changes must begin with us. And they must begin in our hearts. We must realize that the decadence that we see around us, well, that's simply a reflection of who we have become as a people in the United States. A decadent people cannot have anything better than a decadent government. Because in a free nation, the government is going to reflect who the people are. We need to be cognizant of that because it's only by realizing that we are the government that our actions and our inactions have led us to the government that we have now, that our desire to pay ourselves from the government till has in fact led us to the point where we're at 
then I'll tell you, we won't see any better than this. Things will continue to deteriorate. So when I talk about patriotism, I, I don't just mean a schmaltzy number of flowery words expressing love for a country. Patriotism has to be far deeper than that. Ultimately, patriotism needs to get to the heart of what it means to live as a good and godly citizen of the government under which God has placed us. And that means we don't just point fingers at government officials, as bad as some of them may be. We first point the fingers at ourselves and consider whether our moral state could uphold anything better than the actual government that we've got. I've oftentimes said that God blesses a nation by giving them a government better than they deserve, and God curses a nation by giving them the exact government that they, de they deserve. So if you're unhappy with the government that you have now, understand that you've been cursed with the exact government that you deserve. And I'm talking about all of us together as Americans. May God give us a government better than what we deserve as a people. Even more than that, May we truly recognize our sins and our wicked ways. And may we turn to, away from them and turn to God and pray for him to forgive us of our sins, to help us to walk differently from our wicked ways, And then to enjoy his promise that he will heal our land. I wish that Joe could have been here. I would have loved for him to have given a testimony about one of the people that he knows who have given their all in order to see that we could be a free nation. You know, this nation has been blessed to have many, many, many who are willing to give all that we could enjoy the freedoms that we have. I was blessed to know some of them, like Lieutenant Eric Paliwoda, who was killed in Iraq. late in the war that would eventually topple Saddam Hussein's government and end his reign of terror there. But I'd like to give the testimony of, a, uh, of one of the veterans from the Yadrang Valley 
Ed Tutal Freeman. And we read, by the time the Korean War broke out, Ed Freeman was a master sergeant in the Army Engineers. But he fought in Korea as an infantryman. He took part in the bloody Battle of Port Chop Hill and was given a battlefield commission which had the added advantage of making him eligible to fly. A dream of his since childhood. But flight school turned him down because of his height. At six foot four, he was too tall. A nickname that followed him throughout his military career. In 1955, however, the height limit was raised and Freeman was able to enroll. He began flying fixed-wing aircraft, then switched to helicopters. By 1965, when he was sent to Vietnam, he had thousands of hours of flying time in choppers. He was assigned to the 1st Cavalry Division Air Mobile, 2nd in command of a 16-helicopter unit responsible for carrying infantrymen into battle. On November 14, 1965, Freeman's helicopters carried a battalion into the Yagdrang Valley for what became the first major confrontation between large forces of the American and North Vietnamese armies. Back at base, Freeman and the other pilots received word that the GIs they had dropped off were taking heavy casualties and running low on supplies. In fact, the fighting was so fierce that medevac helicopters refused to pick up the wounded. When the commander of the helicopter unit asked for volunteers to fly into the battle zone, Freeman alone stepped forward. He was joined by his commander, and the two of them began several hours of flights into the contested area. Because their small emergency landing zone was just 100 yards away from the heaviest fighting, their unarmed and lightly armored helicopters took several hits. In all, Freeman carried out 14 separate rescue missions, bringing in water and ammunition to the besieged soldiers and taking back dozens of wounded, some of whom wouldn't have survived if they hadn't been evacuated. Do you understand that the medevac choppers had been called back because it was too dangerous for them, it was too hot? But this guy volunteered along with others to go back in and do what the medevac choppers wanted to do. This guy had guts. Freeman left Vietnam in 1966 and retired from the Army the following year. He flew helicopters another 20 years for the Department of the Interior, herding wild horses, fighting fires, and performing animal censuses. Then he retired altogether. In the aftermath of the Yadrang battle, his commanding officer, wanting to recognize Freeman's valor, proposed him for the Medal of Honor. But the two-year statute of limitations on these kinds of recommendations had passed, and no action was taken. Congress did away with that statute in 1995, and Freeman was finally awarded the medal by President George W. Bush on July 16, 2001. Freeman was back at the White House a few months later for the premiere of the movie, We Were Soldiers, a 2002 feature film that depicted his role in the Yadrang Valley. 
as he was filing out of the small White House theater, the president approached him, saluted, and shook his hand. Good job, too tall, he said. Now, you may not serve your country in battle. God may not have called you to do that. But I will tell you that God has called you to serve your country. And you need to find a way to do it. There's nothing that distresses me more than someone who dumps on the country, but who has never served the country. And we need to be of a different sort of mentality. We need to be different people. God has called us to serve our country. Find out how you can serve your country. I would imagine it will align nicely with the way God has called you to serve him. And then may this July 4th just be the beginning of a revival that will sweep around this nation and that will change our nation back to a shining city on a hill. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, I see some of the kids. Are the kids coming down? Okay. Well, what we will do then is in just a moment, we will uh, enjoy the kiddish. The kiddish, uh, kiddish is a word, it, it's derived from another word, kadosh, which means holy, and it gives us an understanding of the reason for the day. Because you see, God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And scripture tells us that he hallowed the seventh day and that he sanctified the seventh day. That in fact, the seventh day is kadosh. It's holy. It's a holy day. It's a day in which we take time to spend with God to learn of God, to worship God, but also to fellowship with one another and enjoy one another because God has created us to be a mishpacha, a true family, a family of people who are dedicated to the idea that Yeshua is our Lord and Savior and that he has called us to do certain things, among those to make disciples, among those to help the poor, to help the widow, to help the orphan, to help the stranger in our midst, and to live our lives in such a way that as we reflect God to the society around us, that others may ask us, what is different about you? So that we might have a ready answer for the hope that is within us. But this is what this day speaks of. So it's a very, very important day, and everyone should honor it. We should honor the Shabbat. It's God's day. 